Wonderful to look out and see so many visitors, and especially for your sake, let me let you know that we have been working through the Gospel of John for many, many months now, and we're continuing that this morning as we look at John chapter 12, starting in the second half of verse 36 and reading through verse 50. Uh, The words will be on the screen behind me, but if you'd prefer, you can look it up in your pew Bibles on page 1069. Again, beginning at the second half of verse 36, we read, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I tried to highlight in our children's message, oftentimes in our world we are confused about the difference between an opinion and a fact. And in that confusion, it can often cause us and lead us to a whole lot of trouble. I think, for example, uh, growing up as a young person in the Midwest, or as most of you say, back east, I would often go on camping trips with our cadet group of our church, sometimes in the winter. And there was at least one retreat that we went on a camping trip where it was just that time of year where the snow was falling and the ice was starting to form. And we were camping near a pond and, of course, we're tempted, right? There's just enough ice, but is it enough? And so we threw rocks and we threw sticks and one of the kids was convinced the ice is going to be strong enough to hold us. And as much as the rest of us tried to say, well, you see it's cracking when we throw a rock or you see how there's still water on the edges, he was determined he was going to try to walk out on the ice. Well, in ignoring us, sure enough, he made it a couple of steps and before he knew it, fell through the ice and was knee-deep in water. Fortunately, he was able to just walk back after a little bit of a struggle, but 
his idea that it was an opinion of whether or not the ice could hold him was met with the cold reality that it indeed was a fact. It was not strong enough to hold him. We, as a people, are a stubborn people. It can be very hard to change our minds, and as we are reluctant to be convinced, despite all of the evidence to the contrary that can be presented to our minds. And I say that because in thinking of the example of a cadet that falls through the ice, I can think of all kinds of other examples that I've been a part of and seen. You hear people saying over and over again, an umbrella is not a good enough parachute for you to be able to jump off of that roof. Don't go that way or you're going to get lost. You're going to want to bring a coat with you. I've been doing this for 30 years. You can't do it that way. Despite those warnings, people still in their stubbornness try to move forward. And again, they are met with the predictable consequences. And of course... I don't want to point the finger at other people without pointing it at myself. I can think of plenty of examples where people have said the same thing to me. It's the wrong way to do it. And I said, no, I can, I can do this. And sure enough, I fail and pay a cost as a result. I say that because, again, throughout the study of Book of John, not only have we been looking at all of these different passages, but throughout, I've been trying to keep one question before us, which is the question, who is this Jesus who is being revealed in all of these stories? And in many ways, that question comes to a culmination in the text that we just read. We started reading at the end of verse 36 that says, When Jesus had said these things that we looked at last week, he departed and hid himself from them. And after this point forward in the book, Jesus is no longer going to be focusing on the crowds and the groups and, and the individuals in the public, but all of our attention is going to be directed to his disciples and his work now to prepare them for the eventual death and resurrection that he's about to go through. And so this is the end of his public ministry. And again, Let's just remind ourselves of some of the things that we've seen that have revealed and help us answer that question. Who is this Jesus throughout his public ministry? We've heard the testimony of John the Baptist. We've seen him miraculously turn water into wine. We have seen him heal an official's son from afar. He healed a man, who, an invalid, at the pool of Bethsaida saying, stand up and walk. And he did. He had fed 5,000 men and probably many more with only five loaves of bread and two fish. He walked on water. He restored sight to the blind. And recently he had raised the dead Lazarus back to life. And all of that was done as signs to reveal and support the claims that he was making about himself that we've also heard over and over again, that he was and is the bread of life, that he is the light of the world, he is the way, the truth, and the life, he is the good shepherd, he is the son of God, and many more that could be added to us. And now here we are at the end of his public ministry and having seen all of that and having heard all of those things. The question is, what kind of response has he received? And verse 37 says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. How are we to understand that? 
wasn't it enough for Jesus himself to, to declare these words and to do these miracles? And if that wasn't enough, what would ever change these people's hearts? And in so few not believing in Jesus, had he failed in his mission? Had he fallen short of doing the work that he had been sent to do? Well, John, as the author of this gospel, is aware of these struggles and of those questions, and he addresses them head on. And he does so by referring back to some of the prophecies that Isaiah had made so long ago. He first quotes from Isaiah 53. And he says in there, Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In answer to that first question, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You hear the arm of the Lord. You can't help but think of the mighty acts of God, especially of his redeeming the people out of, out of Egypt and setting them free. And while they had seen so many miracles and seen and heard so many great things of all of the mighty things that the arm of the Lord had revealed, who has believed? And the answer to that rhetorical question is not many. Very few, in fact. That throughout history, some of the people that had seen the mightiest of God's revelation had continued to deny his power and to reject him. And as it was back in history, so it is once again, even in the face of Jesus. But does that mean that he was a failure? Well, John then quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, which says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Straightforward reading of that text suggests that God has prevented many from truly understanding and recognizing what was going on. That as we saw last week in the speech of God from heaven, some just heard it as a noise like thunder. Others confused it for angels, but only those who had ears to hear could recognize its truth. And that God in many ways had just handed people over to the hardness of their heart. The basic point that John is making then is that in the evident lack of faith and belief of so many, this was not actually a failure of Jesus, but this was happening just and exactly as God had prophesied through Isaiah so long ago. In fact, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Their rejection was what had been said would come to pass. And as one commentator said, the issue has never been that we are totally deprived. That we are without proper understanding. That the information is there because if we were totally deprived, then the answer would just be more education. To teach, to instruct, to point people to the right things. And as soon as they understood with their minds, then they could believe. But instead, the reality is we are totally depraved. Meaning it's not that we're missing information, but that in our natural tendency, being born into sin, our desire is to hate God and to hate our enemy, and we will in and of ourselves always run away from God. Which is why information isn't the answer. But the real answer is that that heart of stone must be transferred to a heart of flesh, and that could only happen through what Jesus was about to do in offering himself as a payment for those sins, 
so that we can become new. And in many ways, I think that idea is a challenge, but it both comforts us and challenges us. I know that whenever we do a baptism, oftentimes there are some sitting who grieve because they want that moment themselves, but thus far have been prevented. Similarly, I asked three children to stand, and I don't know if many of you could even see that they were standing because they're young. And we see these young children step forward, and I know that there are other parents here that say, Why can these young children get it? But my 30-year-old, my 40-year-old, my 50-year-old son or daughter has never felt the, the compulsion themselves to take that step of faith. The comforting part is, it's not for lack of effort or, or, or knowledge that they haven't done it. But until and unless the Holy Spirit moves, they won't give their hearts over. Now, that doesn't excuse us. That doesn't say, oh good, I'm off the hook. I don't have to teach. I don't have to instruct. No, we are obligated to fulfill the promises that we make to instruct them and to continue to lead them by our example, to keep putting the truth before them. But it's not up to you to change a person's heart. You can't do it. Only the Spirit can. And so we pray for the Spirit to move and to act But nevertheless, we are called to instruct. The reality is that the gospel has the effect of hardening the hearts of some and softening the hearts of the others. And the only difference between those two is the goodwill of God for his glory. Now, having recognized that there was a great deal of unbelief about Jesus still present in the majority of people, We also find out in verses 42 and 43 that the numbers were not as low as they might have appeared. We are told that many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess. Now, if you're more of an optimist, this is good news. Yes, it looks like the numbers of believers in Jesus are rather small. But here's the good news. There's a lot more out there. They're just in the shadows. And they haven't confessed their belief. But really, this isn't a a note of optimism. It's a challenge, and it's a discouragement. Again, according to building off the message we had last week, the reality for these people were is that they were more concerned about the glory that comes from man than the glory that comes from God. And in fear of humanity, they didn't state what they really believed because they were worried about the consequences. For the three of you that stood up today to profess your faith, let me tell you, uh, this is the easy part. I know it's nervous to stand in front of church and to be asked a lot of questions in front of council, but to be able to confess your faith in front of a group of people that also believe and to be celebrated in that as it should, this is easy. The hard part comes when you have to stand alone. When you're in a group of people that will mock you potentially for the faith that you claim and they will ridicule you and you may have to sacrifice friendships or even your own reputation, things that are hard to sacrifice because you're standing alone. And that's not just for the three of you, that's for all of us. When we fear humans' judgment more than we fear the glory of God, then our ministry will be greatly hindered and hampered. 
to the point that true believers will be discouraged because they don't even know that we exist. I hope for all of us that our testimony and faith is consistent and seen by all, no matter who is watching, whether it be fellow believers or unbelievers, all would know that we are followers of Christ. Well, having concluded his public ministry, John ends this section by quoting from Jesus that he basically gives a summary of all of the things that he was trying to reveal to him, to to the public, the truth that he had been communicating through his word and through his signs. First of all, in verse 41, we hear a comment from John referring to the quoted text from Isaiah saying that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, in that context, the his glory and speaking of him could only be referring to Jesus, which means that when Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant who would come and sacrifice himself, he was prophesying about Jesus. And even in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah had the vision of the glory of the Lord, of Yahweh, seated on the throne with the angels covering their faces in his presence and the a threshold of the temple shaking in his presence, that Isaiah was seeing the glory of Jesus at that moment. It's an incredible testimony that Jesus was and is God revealed to Isaiah in these texts that, quite frankly, are very challenging for people like Jehovah's Witnesses that deny the divinity of Jesus. Well, those truths are furthered by what Jesus says about himself. Who is Jesus? And he reminds us that anyone who believes in Jesus believes in the Father. That to see Jesus is to see God. The two are inseparable. That Jesus had come into the world as a light so that those who believed in him no longer needed to walk in darkness and that everything that Jesus said and did was done so in response to the command of the Father. In short, the truth that has clearly been proclaimed and demonstrated throughout his public ministry is that Jesus is God. The people of Jesus' day had clearly seen that truth displayed, and now all of you here this morning have clearly heard that truth proclaimed. So what are you going to do with that truth? There really are only two options. You can reject the truth. Despite the clear evidence and the examples that you've heard and seen, despite the evidence that we have that Jesus existed and that he did do what he said and that the Bible is an accurate source for his revelation, You can move forward in your stubborn ways and choose to deny that that is true. And the end result of that, unfortunately, will be judgment. At this particular time, Jesus says, I'm not here to judge. I'm just here revealing. I'm here telling. I'm pointing people to the truth that exists. But having been exposed to that truth, he's very clear. Every person will be responsible and judged by how they respond to that truth. And there will come a day when each and every one of us must stand before God and we will have to give an account for how we responded to the truths that you heard proclaimed this morning, echoed throughout the scripture. 
It is not a matter of opinion of whether or not ice is capable of holding you. Just like it is not a matter of opinion if Jesus is God or not. It is true. And because it is true, to reject Jesus is to reject God. And you will be judged accordingly. But of course, we don't overlook the good news. And that is to accept the truth. To be able to say with those that profess their faith this morning that Jesus is the Son of God sent to redeem the world and that I accept him as my Lord and my Savior. To accept that truth is to receive the promise of eternal life as explained in verse 50. But also to accept that truth, don't overlook the greatness of that. Unfortunately, I think for many of us that have been had the privilege of growing up in the church, we can kind of say the words that, yes, Jesus is God and he died for me and, and neglect to realize how incredible that good news truly is. Jesus is God. He left the glory of the throne in heaven where he was worshipped by the angels and he came to the sinful world and he was mocked. And he was denied and he lived with struggles that broke his heart and caused him to grieve. And why did he do all of that? Because his love for you was so strong that he would rather go through all of those trials and struggles and hurts than spend eternity without you. God came to this earth to die on a cross so that you could be redeemed saved, and that you might join him in eternity and glory forever. What an amazing truth. And since that is true, all of our praise and worship and glory should be given to him, and all of our lives should be lived in believing this is who he says I am, and I am going to give my everything to serve him and to build his kingdom the truth is, Jesus is God. It's not a matter of opinion. But what do you do with that truth? You either reject it to be judged or you accept it and live accordingly. May God, through his spirit, open our stubborn eyes and soften our hard hearts to be able to accept and believe that great truth. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, throughout the life of Jesus on this earth, he not only claimed bold and incredible things about himself, but he backed those claims up with absolutely unbelievable miracles. And in watching those, we have learned that indeed, he is your son. He is the eternal God. And he is worthy of all praise and glory. Lord, as those that celebrate and accept that truth, may it be reminded to us again, may it be refreshed in our hearts again this morning. And may knowing that change the way that we live. But I also continue to pray for those that have been exposed to that truth but struggle to accept it. I pray that through ongoing uh, examples of your glory, ongoing learning about who you are, that through your spirit you would continue to soften their hearts so that one day they could truly appreciate 
the reality of who you are and why you sent your son to redeem them. Lord, may your kingdom grow. May the good news of your gospel go forth and may we do all that we can to help share that with others so that you might be glorified and honored in all we do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.